Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you again, and I'm excited that we have a date, uh, June 14th, in which we can meet face to face. Uh, that's going to be a great time. I'm really excited about that. I hope you're excited about that too. Uh, we sure have missed you. There's nothing like being uh, among our church family. God has given us a church family for a reason. And I hope that this time for me, what it's done has helped me appreciate you even more. And I hope that it's done the same for you. Uh, as, as you know, all of us know, um, this, this has been a difficult season. Um, this has brought out uh, emotions, uh, fiery emotions, um, anxiety, worry. I mean, I think we can all say that we have uh, gone through some of these emotions, uh, if not all of them. And it makes it even more difficult when you don't have a church family to see face-to-face -face and to hug and to uh, get a handshake and to let somebody know face-to-face -face what you're going through. Um, so that, that can be even more difficult. And so we're very glad that, uh, that we get to see each other again. I mean, what a blessing that is that we have a church at all. And what a blessing it is that we, we see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and with all of this that, is, that we have been going through, and I'm sure you're aware of this too, uh, there are many differences of opinions, um, especially when it comes to church. There normally is, but then during this time, it just kind of comes to a head. And I think that combined with emotion and anxiety and, and just missing people, I mean, there are, um, it's, it's easy to have very, um, very potent opinions. And I'm sure you, you know, uh, setting a date for gathering together again, um, there are many opinions about that. There's a lot of opinions about, uh, you know, opening too early or opening too late or uh, six feet. Is it six feet or should we hug? Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? I'm not telling you anything new. You've been through this. You've been thinking through this. Um, but I've heard from many of you and uh, I know that this time is really unique because there are differences in op of opinion that um, maybe are wider than they've ever been at church. And what I want to do today is help you understand uh, 
church family that whatever your opinion is, you are loved and you are accepted and you are the bride of Christ. And we want you to know that prayerfully, we want to be a church that knows how to disagree. It's been a difficult thing for churches for 2,000 years. It's difficult for a church to know how to disagree and disagree well and disagree to the glory of Jesus. We know that's true because uh, we're going to enter, we've heard a passage, you heard Bob read a passage, and we're going to dive into a passage of a church that was struggling to disagree. But there is a way for churches to disagree in love and disagree well. And even when, when churches take Scripture and apply it to themselves and to our hearts when we disagree, there's a way to take disagreements in church and glorify Christ even in disagreements. To see two people disagree and come together as a church family, it's a beautiful thing. Such a picture of the gospel. And so uh, what I want to do is, is I want to dive into this passage and I want to talk to you about how churches can disagree to the glory of God. How church members can disagree to the glory of God. Now, before we start talking about these details and about disagreeing, uh, we need to understand that our relationship together as church family is an essential part of who we are as Christians. That I can't live out the life of a faithful follower of Jesus without you. Isn't that incredible? That ties us together eternally. That ties us together deeply. I can't, I can't follow Christ faithfully without you. A church family is not optional. I mean, we see that everywhere in Scripture. I'm going to give you a few examples. Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He's talking to disciples to love one another. This is not a universal call to love everybody in the world, although we should. This is a particular comment about his followers. People will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. I need you for that. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is in the law of God, he says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says the whole law of God is wrapped up in these two things. So half the law of God is wrapped up in me loving you and loving others as much as I love myself. When we, let's get it more, even more toward the church. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew and Greek. So just like we have members of our bodies, they're all connected you know that little toe is connected to your body when you wake up and you stub, stub it in the middle of the night. You know that thing's connected. Just as all the members of our body are connected, so we are all connected together as Trinity Baptist Church. And when we talk about disagreements, think about the disagreements that could come between Jews and Greeks. Jews and non-Jews. That's Real disagreements can happen there. 
And so Paul follows this up in a letter to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2.14. He says, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. The peace in our church who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So one of the reasons Jesus came was to make his church, the bride, and then to be the one who brings peace in his bride, the church. Destroying a wall of hostility. And then Jesus prays for us, Trinity. Do you know he prays for us? Jesus prays for Trinity and other believers. He prays this way in John 17, 21. He prays for us that they, us, Trinity, may all be one. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Jesus knew that his church would struggle at times with disagreement. And he prays that even in that disagreement and in all times that we would be unified. And finally, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul again, in a letter to a church, says this, Philippians 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, same attitude, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. So I think all of these scriptures and everything else and just the flow of the New Testament tells us that that for faithful followers of Jesus, church is not optional. And we're not talking about just sitting somewhere on Sunday morning. Church is not optional, but a church family is not optional. And what happens when you bring a sinner like me, a sinner like Jordan Hodges, together with other sinners like you? What's going to happen? We are going to disagree. That's just the nature of being human. That's just the nature of it. And here's the important thing to remember, especially in this culture where to disagree seems like such an offense. To disagree is not the end of the world. It's what we do when we disagree that really matters. When we disagree, we are called to be unified. To have unity even in our disagreements. So, Unity is not allowing disagreements to erode our bonds of love, to erode our evangelism, or to erode our obedience to God's Word. And our unity reveals how valuable we think Jesus is. Reveals how valuable we think Jesus is. And so, in this time, and in all times, but in this time in particular, I've got my opinions, and I think I'm right. And that would mean if you have your opinion and it's different than mine, I think you're wrong. And that's not the end of the world. That's not the end of the world. We're not talking about something in here that's crystal clear, that's a main and plain thing that I believe and you don't believe. We're not talking about that. We're talking about trying to navigate this difficult situation and grace and mercy and humility and with charity and we can disagree and that's okay. So, how do we passionately disagree on important issues within our church and remain unified?
That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a few principles to help us do that. And we're going to talk about a church that is very much like the American church, the church at Corinth. That's why it's called 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church has been called the American church 2,000 years ago. Uh, And it's been called that for a lot of reasons, but this church is rich. American church is rich. This church is free. The American church is free. This church is popular. This church is prone to compromise. This church is opinionated. And all those things define our American church. And this church in Corinth that has all of these things, they wrote a letter to Paul asking lots of things and talking to Paul, but one of the things that they asked about and was very important and very on their mind was, Paul, we have a disagreement. We disagree. There's something that's driving us crazy. There is a divisive and opinionated disagreement in our church. And it all, it all revolves around eating meat. Isn't that a funny thing? Don't we, don't we find just the most ridiculous things to disagree about sometimes? Find disunity in. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? It sounds just like me, you know? In the, in the town of Corinth, as in most ancient cities, eating sacrificial food was an integral part of their worship experience. So when you go to your pagan temple to worship, more likely, or more likely than not, you're going to have a feast. And part of that feast is going to be the ritually sacrificed meat of animals. So you're going to be eating this. Even, we, we know, even Israel, if you know your Old Testament, even Israel has an element of this in their worship of Yahweh. Sometimes the, the sacrifices to Yahweh, are, are um, we, we partake in that. And in that way, it's almost like God and, and we are having an intimate meal together. So even we know in, in true religion, we have seen this. And so that in false religions, they had that as well. And, and in the ancient world, if you are going to eat meat, you are probably going to have to find it in these sacrificial ritualistic feasts. That's when you're going to find it. That's when you're going to have it. Think about poor people. Poor people aren't going to find meat just lying around. They're not going to be able to afford meat. So if they're going to eat meat, it's going to be involved in these temples. Religious, state, and private meals all would involve meat that has been sacrificed to idols in these false religions. So if you've got a civic meeting, if you've got a civic celebration, a community celebration, you're going to have meat sacrificed to idols. If you're going to go to the temple and have a feast, it's going to be meat sacrificed to idols. And then if you're going to go to a private party, a private feast, that meat is going to involve meat that's been sacrificed to idols. It's just part of it. It's just part of their world. And all this meat was portioned in three ways. Some of it was burned up for the false god. Some of it was distributed immediately to the worshipers. And then some of it was put on a table for anyone who wanted it. They could come and they could eat it. And then... What are you going to do when that sacrificed meat, sacrificial meat, is there and nobody's eating it? What are you going to do? Well, you're going to drop it off at the market and you're going to sell it. And so then you've had this feast and now you take the excess meat and you put it in the market. And then this, this guy, Joe Schmo, is going to come and he's going to buy it. And he's not going to know where it came from. And he's going to go home he's going to eat it. And so that's where, that's a huge part of their life in ancient Corinth. 
It'd be like us going to a restaurant. As often as you go to restaurants, these people are going to these feasts with sacrifice, meat sacrificed to idols. Now, can you see where the controversy is going to be coming from? You can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. You're a Christian. Of course I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Who are you to tell me I can't eat meat sacrificed to idols? I've been eating this meat for my whole entire life. We've been having this meat. Didn't do anything for me then. And now I know that Jesus is Lord and those idols are nothing. And so of course I can eat meat. Don't tell me I can't eat meat. Well, what do you mean you can eat meat? Don't you know where I came from? I was a poor boy in Corinth and I grew up watching my parents eat this meat in the temple and, and they, they worshiped those false gods for their entire life and I know they died in their sins and I, I'm afraid that they died in their sins and now that they're in hell because they rejected Jesus, they didn't come to Jesus and now I'm saved and I see that history in my family. I'm not, you, you shouldn't be touching that meat. It's nothing to mess with. You can imagine that conversation. And you don't have to imagine too much because we, we, might, we might like to think that that's just a, that's a conversation for 2,000 years ago, but it has nothing to do now. Uh, but we know that there, there's halal meat. Are you aware of halal meat? Um, and it's all over. It's, it's meat that has been prepared and, and has been butchered uh, to Muslim standards, to the standards of the Quran, to make sure that it is appropriate and clean for a Muslim person to eat. And you might think, well, that's just probably somewhere in the Middle East. No, I mean, there's halal meat in, um, in grocery stores in America. And it's prepared for our Muslim friends and neighbors. How, how would you feel about eating some of that meat? If I had you over to my house and I said, hey, guess what? They ran out of, uh, they ran out of chicken and so I had to come and get this halal meat. Uh, are you okay with that? How would you, how, what would you be feeling? You can imagine, you can imagine the controversy. You can imagine the confusion here. And so what we have is a disagreement that's heated enough uh, that has brought sinful division in this church. You got the eat the meat crowd. I'm free to eat meat in Christ. And you've got the don't eat meat crowd. And as Bob read, eat meat. We know that Jesus is Lord, that there's no God but, but the Trinity, so I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. This group says, we know that Jesus is Lord, and we know that there's no God but God, uh, but that's nothing to mess with. Those talking about idols, and we need to take this seriously. We can't be eating meat. And this division was bad enough, and it was hot enough, and went on long enough that they felt they needed an apostle's um, an apostle's word to tell them what they needed to be doing. And this division has led to destruction in the church, destruction of believers. Paul says destruction of believers, destruction of witnesses, of their witness, destruction of love, destruction of humility, destruction of unity, destruction of their ability to reveal the glory of Jesus unadulterated. And so they write a letter to Paul and he writes this letter back. And one of the points he makes is he gives them five principles in how we disagree in unity. Five principles. The first one, 
How do we disagree, Trinity? How can we disagree and be unified? How can we disagree and love each other? How can we disagree and glorify Christ? How can we disagree to the glory of God? Isn't that a funny phrase? How can we disagree to the glory of God? Well, first we need to understand that Christians can be right in the wrong way. You with me? Christians can be right in the wrong way. Let me read this to you again. This is chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, and we'll jump down to, to 8. Now, Paul says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So the don't eat meat crowd, Paul says, Hey, guess what? You're right. We know. That the meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. Those idols are nothing. They are, they are wood. They are stone. They are nothing. So we know that that meat has no special demonic presence in it that's going to harm you or take you away from Jesus. We know that to be true. And we even know that all food, whether you eat it or don't eat it, that doesn't commend us to God. What commends us to God? The work of Jesus Christ and our faith in Him makes us Totally accepted by God. So Paul says, you're right. But you're right in the wrong way. You're right. But your attitude makes it such that you might as well be wrong. He says, you're right, but you're right. And you're right to say, all of us possess knowledge. Now the quotations there were not in the original. It was added uh, by the translators, but you know why, but you can see why there's a, there's quotations here. That is probably what they've been saying. That's probably their rallying cry. We can eat meat. We know that there's no such thing as false gods. There's only one God. We know all of us possess this knowledge. That's probably what the eat the meat crowd was using as a rallying cry. That's probably what they wrote to Paul. They said, Paul, come here and straighten these guys out because they say we shouldn't even. We know that this is nothing. We know. And one of the pastors I heard, I was talking about this, and this thing said it really well. This is their attitude. We know that we all possess knowledge. We, we all possess knowledge. This is, the, this is what they're really saying. Duh. Has anybody ever said that to you? Well, duh, duh. That's their attitude. You should be smarter than that. You should know better than that. You should be more mature than that. And so what does Paul tell them? Paul tells them, you're right, but you are right in the wrong way. And you are right in a way that will destroy your brother or sister in Christ. He says, this knowledge, knowing that way, what does he say? He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something. If anyone imagines that he knows something like this, duh, that's imaginary. And he says, all that type of knowledge does is puff you up. You know, walking around like you own the place. Like, ah, I've got it all figured out. Those, 
those people over there, they're lower than me. They're, they're less intelligent than me. They're not less spiritual than me. If they only could rise to the occasion like I did, they would know that they can eat meat. Those poor peasants. And so apparently this type of knowledge has become a litmus test in the church. Who's got it going on and who doesn't? Who knows their Bible and who doesn't? Who's the real Christian and who's not the real Christian? Who's better, wiser, and more mature? Duh! We all know this. Paul says, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So when we have this attitude in church, when we disagree of, duh, I can't believe they would think that. I can't believe they would do this. Don't they know? What we're really doing is breaking down our brothers and sisters in Christ. That type of knowledge puffs up, breaks down, but love builds up. So, for the Christian, this type of love, Paul says, is imaginary. If you imagine you know something you don't really know as you ought to know. So for a Christian, to know facts is not the point. To be right about facts is not the point. If you have knowledge without love, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. So for the Christian, knowledge is great, but knowledge is not meant to just sit between my ears to help me look my nose down at everyone else who disagrees with me. Knowledge is meant, like everything else God gives us, for the good of His bride. Christians can be right in the wrong way. Second principle. Being right is wrong if it causes another Christian to stumble in their pursuit of Jesus. Verse 7 through 12. However, so you're right, you're right. We know eating meat sacrificed to idols is nothing because the idol is not anything. There's only one God. We know this is true. We know that eating doesn't commend you. If you eat something, it doesn't bring your status down before God. If you eat something, it doesn't raise you up before God. We know all this is true. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as if it was really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will they not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That's a big deal. 
Being right is wrong if it causes another Christian to stumble. Paul says, look, you're right in this. That idols are nothing. We know that there's no magical thing in that meat when you eat it. We know we can. You can eat it to the glory of God. We get that. But if that person, maybe he's a baby Christian and just came from this culture, this pagan culture, maybe walks by the temple and he sees you chowing down on that meat in there. He says, wow, that's an elder of my church. That's a pastor of my church. That's my Sunday school teacher. That's the person that sits next to me in the, on the worship team. Maybe X, Y, and Z. And the, oh, I'm going to try to be a brave Christian like him, and I'm going to go eat. Maybe he goes and eats it, and he has a great time, and he goes home, and his conscience is absolutely defiled. And he thinks, what have I done? I just came to Jesus and and now I I am feeling all this guilt and shame and regret and I can't believe it. And now what what if he thinks, what if he thinks, do they have they got me again? Have these idols got me again? Have this false religion have they has has Satan pulled me into this temple again? Am I now back where I was? Am I a Christian at all? Can you imagine some of these thoughts that might be running through their head? We've all been there. We've all had these thoughts, these thoughts of guilt and shame and worry. So Paul's saying, why in the world would you want to risk putting your brother or sister through that? Why in the world would you risk making them stumble? And I know what what we're tempted to say is, well, they're adults, that's their own decision. That's their own choice. Paul is saying, yes, they're adults, but we will be held accountable to how we treat our brothers and sisters. And if we intentionally put stumbling blocks in their way, or if to hold on to our rights or our desires or our meats, if we do these things and someone stumbles, It's on us, too. I mean, Paul uses this. He says, By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. By your knowledge. He says, forget them. I'll deal with them later. They've got a conversation about staying strong on their convictions. we, We can have that conversation later. By your knowledge, Christian. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Is this a big deal? Thus, sinning against your brother, for whom Christ has died. So, Christian, we can so easily, by our opinions, by our emotional knowledge, by our puffed up knowledge, what Paul is saying is we can easily, by our knowledge, lead our brother into stumbling. We can easily, by our knowledge, dim the power of the gospel in his life. We can easily, by our knowledge, bring up a swelling of guilt and shame in their life. By our knowledge, we, have, we, can, be, we can sin against them. By our knowledge, we can place a stumbling block between him and Christ who died for him. By our puffed up knowledge. By acting on our puffed up knowledge in a way that we are showing we do not care about our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is incredibly weighty. So let's try to 
give a couple of examples about how our knowledge can cause our brothers or sisters to stumble in a way that, that gets out of the ancient, ancient history. Our actions in our freedom with our knowledge can cause others to fall into sin. I've got this beautiful older saint that, has been in, that, that I have known years ago who told this, this really powerful story about how she went uh, out to eat with some friends. And she thought, I'm, I'm going to order um, a margarita. Um, I'm, the Bible never says not to drink. Um, I'm, I'm free in Christ to drink. I'm going to order one of these at dinner. And her friends ordered margaritas as well. And a few months go by and they have dinner again. And as they sit down uh, at the restaurant, their friends say, man, I got to have a margarita. I tell you, uh, I stopped drinking these a long time ago and you got me right back into them. I got to get one of those. Wow. That story has stuck with me. We got to be careful, don't we? We got to be careful with our knowledge. So easy. I mean, that, that woman is the most humble, most wonderful. She had no intention of that. What, how else can we cause our brothers and sisters to stumble? Gossip. Gossip is true facts. It's knowledge about someone else whispered in a way that decreases their social status. How easy is it for that to happen in church? I just thought you should know. I want to tell you this so you can pray for this person. How else? Our political opinions can lead to others stumbling. I've seen it happen in church. I believe these things. I have this knowledge. I know I'm right. I, I really believe I'm right about this. I know I'm right about this. And we can let those political opinions, we can let them go out so easily from our mouths. And we could say things like, I've heard this in church. Not this church, thankfully. You can't be a Democrat and go to heaven. What's that going to do? What's that going to do to our weak brother and sister? Grumbling and complaining in church. Paul tells us not to grumble and complain. Our attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And one of the things he says, don't grumble and complain. How easy is it for us to grumble and complain in church? How easy is it for me to smooth that over by saying, I just really care about my church. You know what they're doing to it? You know what they're not doing to it? How easy is it for us to grumble and complain? That knowledge that we have in our minds about our church, complaining when it doesn't live up to these things, what does that do to our weak brothers and sisters? We can go on and on. What we put on Facebook, what we say to our waitress and waiter, all these things that we do, all these actions that we take, all these words that we speak that come from a place of knowledge, these things can cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. And we might be right about these things. But it's what we do with that knowledge. Third thing, being right is wrong if it leads to, it leads us to grasp our rights instead of laying them down for the gospel and for the good of others. 
Boy, we love our rights. We love our rights. In other words, right is wrong if it leads us to love our rights at the expense of the gospel and at the expense of our loving others. So Paul puts a commercial break in the middle of this food sacrifice to idols and he shows us his own acting this out. He shows us his own being unified in disagreement. He shows us his own laying his rights down for other people. And he says this in chapter nine, am I not free? Yeah, Paul, you're free. Am I not an apostle? Yeah, you're an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yeah, you have. Are you church, not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others, I am not an apostle, at least I am to you for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Sure you do, Paul. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So Paul's issue, Paul has his own issue in the Corinthian church, that many in the Corinthian church have seen Paul work and Paul minister, and Paul has never taken a salary. He's never taken financial help from this church, like other apostles do in other places. And Paul says he, he doesn't take this. He, he has a right to this, but he lays that right down because there's so many traveling philosophers and pagan teachers that come and they go to different places and ask for money before they will speak. And Paul says, I don't want any association with that. So Paul says, I'm not going to take financial gifts from this church so that the gospel can go forward unimpeded. And so Paul says, Church, with this stuff, meat sacrifice to idols about laying down your right to eat whatever you want in Christ. He says, he says, no, no, that's the wrong way to look about it. Look at it. We don't, we don't grasp our rights as if it's our highest priority and as if we're little children snatching things from one another. No, we lay these things out just like, Paul says, I laid down my right for you to financially support me in my work. So, do I have a right to have a believing wife with me? Yes. Do I have a right to eat and drink? Yes. Church, you have a right to eat and drink. You have a right to eat that meat. Do I have a right to take financial gifts from the church that I'm ministering to, even to the point of persecution? Yes. And he says, verse halfway through verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle a stumbling block in the way of the gospel of Christ. Being right is wrong if it leads us to grasp our rights instead of laying them down for the gospel. And my friends, sacrificing our rights for one another makes Jesus look glorious. Makes Jesus look absolutely glorious because who else does that? What do we hear in the news all the time? They're, they're taking away our rights. We've got to earn our rights. It's my right to do this. It's a free country. I can do this X, Y, and Z. And Paul says, you got it all wrong. One of the greatest pictures 
of the transformation of Jesus Christ is a church that is laying down their rights for one another. That makes Jesus look absolutely stunning, absolutely glorious. And then he ends, and it gets, it gets back into the meat there. Go, go to chap, chapter 8, verse 13. Read this with me. One of my, the verses I struggle with most. You ready for this? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Wow. I'm getting hungry just reading that verse. I love meat. What a sacrifice that is. And Paul is saying, our rights that Christ has given us are not ours to be held on to. But he's given these to us so that we may lay them down at the right time. So that we do not make our brothers and sisters stumble. Isn't that something? If it causes my brother or sister to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Do you see the difference in attitude there? Puffed up, I know I can eat. I can eat that meat and I'll tell you why and I know it and I know all these things. If it could possibly cause a brother to be destroyed. If it could possibly cause a brother to lose sight of the gospel, if it could possibly cause a brother to feel guilt or shame, I'll never eat meat again. See the difference in attitude? Number four, being right is wrong if it makes knowledge or my being right or my rights, if it makes these things the goal. Being right is wrong if it makes being right the goal. Listen to how extensive, look at, listen to how far Paul takes this. Verse 19, though I am free from all, I'm free to take a salary, I'm free to eat whatever meat I want, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law. Though I myself am not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, you ready for this wording? To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Right is wrong if we make knowledge or being right or my rights. If we make those the goal, being right is wrong because that's not the goal. Paul's goal is to get rid of all the stumbling blocks, to get rid of anything that could stop him from winning the prize. And what's the prize? We get this wrong. What's the prize? The prize he's talking about here is not heaven. The prize he's talking about are people. They're people. Do you see Paul's heart for people? I've gotten this wrong so much of my life reading this passage. I've gotten this so wrong thinking it's about heaven or it's about, it's about something like, no, it's people. Do you see Paul's heart for people? He says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win them. And we would be mistaken to put this all on evangelism. 
for Paul in this passage, it's bringing people more towards the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether they're outside the church or whether they're inside the church, I will do whatever I can to bring them closer to Christ. If it's laying down my rights, that's fine. If it's not eating meat again, that's fine. If it's I have to get an outside job and not be supported by the church at Corinth, that's fine. I do whatever I can so that I might not cause anyone to stumble and I might bring them more towards the gospel. And he says, so that we might together enjoy the blessings of the good news of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So the idea is we win each other every Sunday in church when we help one another see Christ brighter and more clearly. We win every Sunday that we see each other. We win every phone call where we talk about the gospel. We win every, every time we send a thoughtful text message to each other, propelling each other toward the gospel. That's what Paul is talking about. That's winning. That's winning. Seeing, seeing other people maturing and pursuing Christ is the prize. And so Paul says, run in a way to win the prize. What does that mean? When we disagree, be unified. When we disagree, be quick to lay our rights down for one another. Don't put a stumbling block in somebody's way. Church, have business meetings in such a way to run and win the prize. How many church business meetings in America have given the church black eyes? I've been in a few of them. Thankfully, not here. I've been in a few of them. So Paul's telling us to run the race Let's read verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, run to win the prize. Don't disqualify yourself by hanging on to your rights at the expense of others. Don't disqualify yourself by intentionally living in a way that might stumble your brothers or sisters. Beat your body into submission so that you might win the prize of seeing other people through your efforts and your love enjoying the gospel with you. He says those Olympians who run the race, they get a crown that's made of plants that will die. We get one that's imperishable. What is he saying? He's saying when you run as if you want to win the race, when you're willing to lay down your rights, when you're willing to disagree in unity, when you're willing to, to be humble in knowledge instead of puffed up in knowledge, when you're willing to think about other people first, what you are going to receive 
is an imperishable wreath that lasts forever. What does that look like? Well, I think that looks like your brothers and sisters in Christ, whom you have helped enjoy the good news of Jesus. You're going to see them forever. And what a blessing it is that when you see church, when you see me in heaven, you're going to know that you helped me see Jesus more clearly. Does anything else matter? Does meat matter compared to that? It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. Glorifying Christ, loving others. Paul says, don't disqualify yourself from this prize. Don't let some puffed up knowledge disqualify you from this prize. Don't let eating meat disqualify you from this prize. Don't let your perceived rights disqualify you from this prize. Lay them all down. Be unified. Sacrifice for one another. Love one another, church, in disagreement. And finally, when we disagree, disagree in unity, when we disagree, disagree to the glory of God by being right in the right way. Disagree to the glory of God by being right in the right way. We're going to finish with this this passage here. Chapter 10, verse 23, he kind of finishes his thoughts. He says, all things are lawful. Eat meat. That's okay but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Eat meat, that's okay, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. When you order something, don't say, was this sacrifice to idols? I can't eat that. Don't eat it, buy it. Don't ask it. For, for verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Verse 31. It's a whole idea. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How about this one? Verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Disagree to the glory of God by being right in the right way. How do we do that? How do we do that? No, you might have a right, but not everything builds up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Know that you have rights, you have beliefs, you have ideas, you have facts, you have knowledge. All these things you might have, and they might be lawful to have them. That means you might have thoughts that don't go against anything that's said in here. But that doesn't mean every single one of your thoughts will build somebody up. 
All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for you, but not all things will build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you disagree to the glory of God? When it doesn't cause your brother or sister to stumble, enjoy it to the glory of God. Isn't that freeing? Paul says, look, yeah, you're right. Idols are nothing. You're right. We don't eat or not eat, and God loves us more or less. You're right about all those things. But make sure, work hard, lay your rights down for your brothers or sisters if it causes them to stumble. But guess what? If it doesn't, if you're at home and you're eating meat and you're sure that's not going to cause anyone to stumble, enjoy that burger to the glory of God. Amen? Enjoy that barbecue to the glory of God. Amen? God wants you to be joyful. He's given you these things to be joyful. We just don't take these rights at the expense of of the gospel in other people's lives. But go to the market and buy it. Don't ask. Don't worry about it. Go buy it, take it home, eat it. Go to somebody's house. They lay this meat in front of you. Don't ask, hmm, well, where did this come from? Don't ask, just eat it. And if they tell you, now you're in a place where that becomes complicated for their conscience. Isn't that nice? God is for our joy. Never intentionally act in a way that will cause believers or non-believers to stumble. You see what he says there at the end? Act and live in such a way that you won't offend the Jews, that you won't offend the Greeks, and that you won't bring offense to the church. Is that a priority for us? Isn't that amazing? And then Paul ends with this. Be imitators of me. We saw Paul do this. We saw Paul not take a salary, not take financial gain, laid that right down. So there's no stumbling block in the church of Corinth. We saw Paul do that. Be imitators of me. Why? As I am an imitator of Christ. Why can we do this? Why do we lay our rights down? Where does that come from? Where's the bottom line? Does Jesus tell us to do it and he not do it himself? No. No. We learn this from our king if we refuse to lay our rights down for one another, if we refuse to be humble in our knowledge, if, we're re if we refuse to do all these things, we reject the image that we see of Jesus. Paul says this, Philippians 2, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also of Christ in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, he be, he, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why do we do this? Because Jesus did it for me. What's the bottom line? Because we see our king laying down rights for us. Jesus is right. Jesus' right was that those who sin against him will be punished eternally. That's the right of Jesus. That is not a wrong thing. That's a right. He has that right. Jesus' right is to be in the comfort and glory of heaven forever. He has that right. Jesus has the right to not step foot among sinful people like me. He has that right. And yet, for the glory of God and for the good news among his people, 
he, instead of hanging on to these rights, he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant. He humbled himself, even to death, not just any death, a humiliating death on the cross. We might disagree, but we have never had a disagreement like the disagreement I have had with Jesus. Our disagreement is this. I am a wicked sinner running from Jesus, wanting to overthrow Jesus as the rightful king. And Jesus is the glorious second person of the Trinity who deserves everything, who deserves my total allegiance. That disagreement is huge. Doesn't come close to when we disagree. And yet Jesus, his knowledge wasn't puffed up. It was humble. He wasn't grasping his rights, but he emptied himself for me and for you. And he humbled himself even to death, and not just any death, but death on the cross. So that I might be with him, united with him forever. And because I'm united to him forever, I'm united to you forever, church. So as we gather back together, and there are many different things to be thinking about, and my emotions are high, your emotions are high, we're all stretched thin as we gather back together. My prayer is, my hope is, that one of the things that we can count on in each other is that no matter what you bring to the table, we're here for you. No matter what you think, no matter what your opinions are, we love you, and we are here for you. And that type of church is going to be a church that changes, that sees Jesus change Pittsburgh for the glory of God. A church that can disagree and be lovingly unified. A church that can disagree and be found laying down rights for each other. That's what we want for you. Know you, you are loved. Know you are accepted. And we can't wait to see you again very soon. We love you.